0: Father in heaven, you are mighty and magnificent and tremendous and great, immense, powerful, faithful, merciful, full of grace and truth, loving, kind, benevolent, and we begin our time of preaching today just confessing that you are god and we ask that your word and your spirit would be powerful amongst us there is so much unreality in the hours of our day so many things that divert us from what is truly meaningful and important and so i pray lord that in this hour you would perhaps arrest us again, bring reality clearly into view, bring our condition clearly into view, that we would be changed, that we would glorify you, and if there's someone here that is not yet in relationship with you, that that person may be saved today. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, I have uh, tried my hand at a number of basic repair jobs around the house, Uh, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully. And where unsuccessful, of course, I call in the professionals, which is usually fairly quickly in the process. But on occasion, um, I found myself gluing together Uh, two pieces of what's called PVC pipe for some minor plumbing job. And I've always found, if you've done this work with PVC pipe, you'll know what I'm talking about, I've always found that the cement that is used for that particular job, that purpose, is rather intimidating. Uh, The stuff bonds the pieces of plastic together rather quickly in a way that is absolutely permanent and irreversible. Uh, Once you glue your two pieces of PVC together with this cement, there is no going back. (laughs) So if you make a mistake, too bad because now your glued pieces will never separate again unless you get a hacksaw out and actually physically cut them apart. Uh, the famous home repair guy, Bob Vila, explains it like this. He says that the cement is actually, I'm quoting him here, a chemical solvent that melts the surface of the PVC and then quickly rehardens to fuse the pieces together. So with that in mind, it is wise to think very carefully about how you want the pieces to fit together, do a dry run, or two, or three, before you apply the cement you end up with an irreversible bond once it dries. Well, friends, in our parable this morning, Jesus talks to us about an irreversible, absolutely irreversible situation that each of us could find ourselves in That is 10 trillion times worse than an improperly cemented PVC project. He warns us in this parable of the potential for this ghastly, frightening situation and in his great mercy toward us, Jesus summons us to act today this day so that we will not find ourselves in this situation and so our parable begins in Luke 16 verse 19 let's read it Jesus says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously, every day." So Jesus introduces us to this fabulously wealthy guy. And Jesus here draws attention to the guy's wardrobe, along with the guy's diet. So the guy's wardrobe is purple and fine linen. To get purple dye, For clothing, it meant, in this first century context, it meant extracting lots of that dye from a certain kind of marine snail. So only a wealthy person would have the means to purchase such purple clothing. Remember Lydia was a seller of purple? She was selling expensive clothing. And so this guy has the purple. He has the fine linen. His walk in closet is full of Armani suits and Allen Edmonds shoes. And his diet, he was feasting sumptuously every day. So he had an opulent menu caviar, fine wine, steak and lobster with warmed butter chocolate ganache for dessert and the Greek word here translated as feasted is actually a word that means to gladden or to cheer up so this guy the idea is he's gladdened by his caviar every day notice Jesus says every day he cheered himself with his baked Alaska verse 20 And at his gate, so we learn here that this fabulously wealthy guy lives in a gated community. Which makes sense, of course, because of his wealth. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered, notice, not in Armani suits and purple and fine linen like the rich guy, but rather, This poor man was covered in sores. And this poor man named Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So let's get this picture clear in our mind. We have a gate. And on one side of the gate is a guy who resides in the comforts of his estate, cheering himself with escargot as he luxuriates in his bathrobe. And on the other side of the the gate is this guy named Lazarus who has been laid there. Notice it says in in the parable, apparently this guy can't even walk. He is laid there at this gate and he's covered in open sores. He has no escargot to cheer him. In fact, he wishes only for the scraps of bread that would be underneath the rich man's table after the guests had discarded them there after using them to wipe their hands as they did in this culture. They would use pieces of bread to wipe their hands and then chuck the bread under the table. And the dogs, the most hated animal that there was in this society, the dogs. When the subject of dogs came up, now I have two dogs. I was reading this parable this week and I had to say, sorry guys, but dogs were hated in this first century culture. Um, When dogs came up, it was usually in reference to something disgusting and something unclean. The dogs are here licking the sores of Lazarus. This is a picture, friends, of Lazarus's squalor, his poverty, the fact that he is an outcast. Now before we go on to the next verse of this parable, I want us to pay attention, if you have your Bible, I want you to look at these verses, pay attention to something very important here, and that is, that in verse 19 and in verse 20 that we just looked at, there is, listen, there is absolutely no explicit comment that is made concerning the moral quality of either the rich man or Lazarus. Jesus does not say explicitly that the rich man was wicked Or that Lazarus had lived righteously, or anything of the sort. Verses 19 and 20 are simply descriptive of the two men and their station in their respective stations in life. So the verse gives us detailed photographs, we could call it, detailed photographs of their earthly situations, but there is no explicit judgment. That is given here about the moral standing of either man and it seems to me that Jesus in these two verses simply wants us to see pictures of each man's earthly station or condition as you and I might observe these guys on the street if we saw them so far he hasn't said anything about what's in their respective hearts. But then we come to verse 22. Two funerals. The poor man died. Lazarus died. The name Lazarus comes from the Hebrew Eleazar and it means God helps. Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's Side. Now isn't there something beautiful about that? Something tender and moving about that. Angels carrying poor Lazarus in the moment of his death and the angels bring Lazarus to a place of enormous honor. Yes? They carry Lazarus to a place of special blessing. They bring him to the side Or to the bosom of Abraham. Now in his lifetime, Lazarus couldn't even get a scrap of dirty bread from the rich man's table, but in his death, Lazarus finds himself seated at an honored place, at the eternal table with Abraham. Now listen friends, it's not, I want you to hear this carefully, it's not simply because Lazarus was poor financially, that he now finds himself here with Abraham. The material poverty of Lazarus was not his ticket to this eternal place of blessing that he now finds himself in. Being poor is not the way to heaven. Rather, we can infer here with a high degree of confidence that although Lazarus in his lifetime had been poor in a financial sense, he had been wealthy in a spiritual sense. He knew the Lord. In his lifetime, he had repented of his sin. That's the reason he finds himself here at the side of Abraham. But there's now a second funeral in verses 22 and 23. Listen to the word of God. The rich man also died and was buried. Now notice there's no record of poor Lazarus being buried when he died. His poverty probably meant that he hadn't been given a proper burial. But the rich man is buried. And in Hades, being in torment. The rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Friends, please notice here that the rich man is most certainly not at Abraham's side. The rich man passes through his death and he finds himself in a place called Hades, which is characterized here, to use the language of the verses, it's characterized as torment, anguish, flame. What a shocking reversal has happened here. Lazarus in his lifetime had been in torment, but in the next world he finds himself immersed in blessing, the rich man in his lifetime had been immersed in luxury, Disneyland. But in the next world, he finds himself in torment, anguish, flame. With the rich man, we can infer with a high infer with a high degree of confidence that although he was well-off financially in his lifetime, he had been destitute spiritually. Poor. Spiritually. So it wasn't simply because he was wealthy that he now found himself in torment. No. It was rather because he had been poor toward God in his lifetime that he now found himself in this anguished eternal place. And part of being rich toward God would have been to see Lazarus at his gate and in the compassion of God to offer assistance to Lazarus. But Jesus gives absolutely no indication here that that ever happened in the rich man's life. So, so now here's the rich man post-death. We will all be post-death one day. Here's the rich man post-death in agony, in Hades, conscious and He calls out across a great distance, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Again, there's no record of the rich man having mercy on Lazarus during his lifetime, but now the rich man wants mercy for himself in Hades. Have mercy on me, he says to Abraham, and send Lazarus. Now notice here that the rich man assumes that poor Lazarus can simply be used as an errand boy. You notice that. Send Lazarus. I think perhaps we see something of the arrogance of the rich man that has transferred from life into his post-death condition. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Lazarus had desired in his lifetime, he had desired scraps of bread from under this guy's table. Now in a great reversal, this guy desires water from Lazarus. We notice also here in the parable that two rich men are talking to one another. The rich man and Abraham are talking. Abraham had also been a wealthy man, but the difference between the rich man and Abraham was that Abraham had been hospitable toward people where this rich man had not. Verse 25, but Abraham said, listen to what he says here, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Abraham is saying this to the rich man. He's saying your payout, rich man, was given to you in full within the confines of your short life. As a spiritually impoverished person who did not heed the Lord, even as you absorbed yourself selfishly in your materialism for your 65 or 75 years, you received your Disneyland within your lifetime. And now here in the afterlife, you find that your Disneyland has disappeared like a vapor at dawn. Abraham goes on in verse 26, and besides all this, listen, between us, Lazarus and I, and you, rich man, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now friends, remember at the beginning of this sermon, we talked about the cement for the PVC pipe, irreversible, absolutely permanent when it dries, no going back once the pieces are fused together. Both the rich man and Lazarus died, and they both found themselves irreversibly and permanently and unchangeably in their respective places. Lazarus forever in the place of unending blessing, no changing it. The rich man forever in the place of unending This was now fixed, there was no going back, there was no crossing over from one place to the other. Lazarus would not be coming to offer mercy to the rich man and the rich man could not get out of his place to go over to where Lazarus was. Their new eternal homes were permanent, final, fixed. but still the rich man persists. Verse 27 and 28, and he said, still speaking to Abraham, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. See, make make Lazarus go on an errand then, to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Poor mother and father, right? Six boys. I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment." So the rich man would like it if Abraham would send Lazarus back into the world that Lazarus had departed from to warn the rich man's family members. Wouldn't it be sensational? Wouldn't it be eerily spectacular? To have a dead man come back to issue this warning to those who were still alive. Surely then the five brothers, as they see this, their nervous systems would be sufficiently shocked and it would lead them to make a course correction. Surely. We almost hear the rich man saying here, I know I would have responded to a warning from a formerly dead man but I wasn't given that opportunity. Why wasn't I warned about this awful consequence that I now face having lived my life the way I lived it? Verse 29, listen to the word of the Lord. But Abraham said in reply, they have, and by implication, rich men, you had, Moses and the prophets, let them hear them." Now this, friends, is an absolutely staggering statement here. Think about what Abraham is saying here in this part of the parable. He's saying to the rich man, you think a dead man coming back to life will be sufficient cause to have your brothers turn from their godlessness. Think again. But there is something, (laughs) there is something that is absolutely sufficient to warn them of their danger and cause them to turn to God and that something is the scriptures. When Abraham says Moses and the prophets here it's a common way to say the Old Testament scriptures listen friends the scriptures are sufficient to warn these five brothers while they were yet alive God's word is sufficient to warn us off hell are you with me today What the five brothers must do if they would avoid eternal anguish, eternal torment, eternal flame, is they must read the scriptures and heed the scriptures. The five brothers, still alive on the earth, had Bibles available to them in which God's breath, God's voice, God's revelation are found. Everything necessary. Everything necessary for the salvation of these five brothers and for you and I can be found in the scriptures. Some sort of apparition, some sort of spectacularly revived dead person, some sort of spectacular miracle wasn't what these brothers needed. It wasn't the needful thing. As long as they were drawing breath on this earth, what they needed for their eternal destiny's sake was the Bible. And you and I, sitting in 2022, late 2022, we have an obvious advantage over the five brothers in the parable. Because you and I have not just the Old Testament, not just Moses and the prophets, but we also have the four gospel accounts and the apostolic writings, the New Testament. In this short lifetime we've been given, we have the 66 books, the entire Bible. Let us hear the entire 66 books before the cement dries, yes? Before it's too late, before our eternal home is fixed permanently forever and there's no going back. Oh, I hope you hear the word of God today, my friends. And in the context of this parable, which has to do with rich and poor, and us showing compassion to the poor, the compassion of God, even as the precious seconds of our earthly life are ticking by before we die, There are so many scriptures in the Hebrew Bible that these five brothers have had and that we have in our Bible, so many scriptures that display the heart of God for the poor, for the outcast, for the fatherless, and for the widow. There are so many places, friends, where God explains that he wants debts erased, debts released, where he wants neighbors loved, the needy, afforded justice, food for the hungry, water for the thirsty, and covering for the naked. And the question is, in our little corner of this world, are we hearing the heart of God in the Bible? And are we heeding what he commands? Are we being doers of his word by the enablement and the power of the Spirit that he supplies? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But you know, I think this rich man, he must have been a real wheeler dealer uh, in his lifetime. Maybe he sold cars or something (laughs) in the ancient Near East. Apologies to anyone who sells cars here. He won't stop. He persists again in verse 30, listen to this. And he said, so Abraham's just given this weighty answer. And the rich man says, no, (laughs) no father Abraham, oh boy. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, what, repent. Now this is worth pausing on just for a second. Notice the rich man's very simple calculation here, his math, his calculation is this. Dead man appears alive again, repentance happens. It's a false calculation, but there it is. Almost as if to say, I too would have repented if only I'd had a dead man appear to me. Can we conclude here then that the rich man is implying that he did not repent in his lifetime? Maybe we're getting insight into his own spiritual condition. He didn't get right with God and entered into a reconciled relationship with him. But he would have repented if only a spectacular miracle would have happened in front of his eyes. And now his brothers can have that opportunity if only Abraham will permit Lazarus to go back. And Abraham responds in our final verse this morning if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, so if the brothers don't hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And there are many people in our world today who are not convinced, despite the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Such massive value does Abraham put on the scriptures here. In the words of J.C. Ryle, the Old Testament alone was better than a dead man's testimony. How much better must the whole Bible be? (laughs) Again, the Old Testament alone, Moses and the prophets, was better than a dead man's testimony. How much better must the whole Bible be? My friends, the Bible is sufficient for us in this little blip of time that we call our earthly life. The Bible is sufficient for us. In the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we've walked through this parable together and our tendency after reading this parable might be, might be, to focus on, be transfixed and fascinated by the details of the next world that are suggested in the parable. But I think if we get too fascinated, if we get too taken up with those kinds of details, we've really missed the point. Because really this parable is not about Notice, it's not about the next world as much as it is about this world and whether we will honor the Lord and love our neighbor in this life right now. Listen, the only life that you and I can live is which life? The life that we are living right now. Amen? in the present moment and jesus in the parable is calling us he's summoning us to turn from sin today to repent before the lord today to not put it off but to do it today to believe in jesus as lord and savior today and then to be rich toward him today by our ongoing compassionate loving acts toward our neighbor in the power of the Spirit that he supplies. He never commands us to do anything that he doesn't enable us for. And the parable tells us that there is, there is, listen, there is a real and actual continuity between how we spend our days now and how we, how we will be spending our days after we die. Listen, there is a continuity between our now and between our eternal future. How we fit the PVC parts together, so to speak, the dry run in this lifetime is going to eventuate into a fixed, unalterable, irreversible reality when we die. Either for blessing or for torment. As Helmut Tielica once put it, it's this hour of your life, this hour of my life, that is, he said, charged and loaded with all the gravity of eternity. This hour is charged and loaded with all the gravity of eternity. And some of you are thinking now, well, is this salvation by works? No, this is not salvation by works or entering heaven because of our works. We're not saying that it's our works of compassion that are our ticket into heaven. No, by grace we have been saved through faith. It's only by God's grace that we will enter heaven, but we must keep Ephesians 2.9 firmly in focus as we read this parable, that we have been created in Christ for good works, yes? For good works. Notice the order there, created in Christ first, then the good works, right? Salvation by grace, leading into works. We have been created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Loving our neighbor is not going to write us a ticket into heaven, but loving our neighbor is evidence that we have been saved by grace through faith. Loving our neighbor as God prescribes is the blessed fruit of a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and loving our neighbor, showing compassion to our neighbor. These are non-negotiable for the born-again Christian. And so my Christian friend, I suggest thinking on those words of Tielica tomorrow morning when you wake up you're still in bed ask the lord's help as you're rousing before you have your coffee that you would see every hour of your day as charged and loaded with all the gravity of eternity and then to live each hour in that light by the enablement of the holy spirit resist resist being numbed out and lulled into a stupor by all the many tricks and all the many diversions of our godless culture. And do see in our parable that God's assessment of us is not the same as culture's assessment of us, amen? The rich man was no, no doubt fond over, no doubt envied, admired by many people while he lived, but God's assessment of him was very different. As J.C. Ryle put it, A person's worldly condition is no test of his state in the sight of God. The standards by which a life is measured by the world are very different than the standard God uses. And our life focus as believers in Jesus must always be on loving, serving, obeying God's commands by the power of the Spirit that he supplies. Let us hear Moses and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles, Blessedly, he has given us the scriptures in which we have everything needed for life and godliness. Finally, with whom do we most identify in the parable? As I read the parable, in one way, it's very difficult for me to put myself in the shoes of either the rich man or Lazarus since both of them are dead. I'm alive and you're alive. And so really, I think that each of us should see ourselves as one of the five brothers. Last I checked, none of us have yet been lowered in a casket into the earth. The rich man wanted a warning to be issued to the five brothers, but really the rich man himself in his place in Hades is the warning to each of us who read the parable. Daryl Bach says, we hear a person in torment warn us to respond with compassion to those around us. In this parable, the grave speaks so that we might hear. And speaking of compassion, and then I'm done. Ultimate compassion, lavish compassion. There is a rich man who impoverished himself in compassion for you and in compassion for me, my brothers and sisters, and his name is Jesus. Second Corinthians eight verse nine says that though he was rich, he was a rich man, yet for your sake he became poor. For your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich Jesus humbled himself, took the form of a servant, poured out his very life on the cross so that the sin of his undeserving people could be blotted out, could be removed, could be taken away. Our compassion must flow to our neighbor this week because of his extravagant compassion for us. May you be blessed in the hearing and in the doing of his word, let's pray. Father in heaven, We praise you and thank you because you have given us, Moses and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles, the word of God. What a precious, precious, the most precious gift that we have in our earthly lifetime. And I pray, Lord God, that this week you would continue to create us as a people who would listen to your word and do your word and heed it, to love our neighbors and to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.